views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation. Today is episode six. Um, we are privileged to have Lieutenant Colonel Tyler Matrix Robarge, and he is the Deputy Head uh, and Director of Flight Test in the Department of Aeronautics at the United States Air Force Academy. He was commissioned in 2003 as a distinguished graduate of the United States Air Force Academy, and he conducted hypersonics aerodynamic research at Purdue University on a Hertz Foundation Fellowship and graduated with a master's degree in aeronautics and astronautics. He then served as an operational F-16 pilot at Aviano Air Base, Italy, and Kunsan Air Base in the Republic of Korea. In 2013, he attended the Empire Test Pilot School as an exchange officer with the Royal Air Force, where he received the McKenna Trophy as the top test pilot graduate. He has performed all types of testing in the F-22 to include flying qualities, structures, avionics, aerial refueling certification, and safe separation testing. Prior to his current position, he was the commander at the 411th Flight Test Squadron, Edwards Air Force Base, California, where he served as the director of the 420-person F-22 Combined Test Force and was responsible for all developmental test flights, flight tests of the F-22 Raptor. Lieutenant Colonel Robarge is a command pilot with combat experience in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and more than 1,800 flying hours in the F-22, F-16, T-41, and 26 other aircraft types. Sir, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. So I guess we'll just hop right into the questions. Sure. Um, in this first part, talking a little bit about the future of the Air Force and what I'll deem the future fight. So um, obviously the F-22 program was cut short um, than originally what it was projected to, how many planes we were projected to build. So if any, is there a strategic level impact of that program getting cut short, especially as near peer-to-peer adversaries are becoming more aggressive? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be resource decisions, right, that, that people have to make, and you've got to deal in the environment that you find yourself. Um, so I'm certainly not going to criticize the decision that was made at the time. However, I don't think any combatant commander would say they don't want more Raptors if we could get them. It is an airplane that's optimized for the peer and near-peer fight, and so the more uh, that we have, the, the more ability we have to, um, to go up into that environment. Yeah, so um, going off that, so obviously the F-22 is kind of the air dominance fighter of the Air Force. Sure. So obviously you were an F-22 test pilot, and if you had to dogfight an F-22 in a plane that was not the F-22, which plane are you taking and why? That's a good question. Um, Another F-22, obviously. (laughs) Uh, It's tough to say because... You know, for, for one, dogfighting assumes that you got to a visual merge, right? You survived all the way uh, from some starting distance. You closed in to the point where you were now in a visual arena uh, in a 1v1 fight. Uh, there are circumstances where that will happen. There's a lot of circumstances where that's not going to happen. Uh, and so my first opt- or goal would be not to get to that merge. If we got to the merge, uh, there's a number of airplanes that... Uh, could be effective. Again, a lot of it comes down to pilot skill, pilot training. Uh, how well do you know your adversary? What can they do? Uh, and what are your capabilities and limitations? How can you exploit their limitations relative to your capabilities? So it's a long way to tap dance to say uh, it'd be tough. If I had to pick one, my F-16 brethren are probably going to shoot me for this. Uh, but it would probably be a C-model Eagle, an F-15C. Uh, that was another pure air-to-air dogfighting platform, very capable at what it does. Um, now, I would much rather take an F-22 to not get to that merge, but that'd probably be my choice. Um, other adversaries are out there that have other uh, planes that have pros and cons, but Eagle's probably my choice. All right, and if we were to flip that onto if you were in a foreign military, 
which foreign aircraft um, out of, say, China and Russia's inventory, which one would you want to fly against a 22? Uh, I mean, I can't go into detail too much about what I know about the various foreign aircraft. Um, I can say, you know, some of the ones that are coming out of China look to be very capable in what they can do. Um, so, you know, probably J-20 type, uh, whatever the latest is, you know, that's that's probably going to have the best technology, have the best chance of catching up, which is why we continue to modernize as well. So looking towards that future fight, um, the, the big program that's in the news in Air Force acquisitions these days is next generation air dominance. Um, what would you like to see out of that aircraft um, as it replaces the F-22 um, to kind of keep our capabilities open um, and uh, integrate it with the F-35 as our other frontline fighter? I think, again, I'm going to pick my words a little bit carefully here. I think the ability to maintain relevance over time is going to be critical. Uh, we live in an information age. We live in an age where the technology in that laptop turns over on the basis of a couple of years. We've seen developments with AI over the last eight months that have just you know blown all of our minds. So I think something that is able to be uh, modernized and continue to be kept relevant at the speed of developments that are happening uh, will be critical to any uh, modern platform. So I think that's one kind of general thread. I think another thread is uh, that information sharing. Again, I think it's going to be an information war. It's not the kind of war where uh, one person goes in alone and unafraid and, and uh, doesn't talk to anybody else until the mission's done. I think the ability to uh, find information, share it among the other players that are out there in this battle space, um, that'll be critical. Whether those are uh, piloted players or those are unmanned players, etc., the ability to share all of that will be pretty critical. So kind of going off that, actually, our next question that we were going to ask is, you know, as the Air Force starts leaning towards unmanned drones and, and developing autonomous systems, what's the advantage of having that pilot in the cockpit of a fighter versus if they were going to go full unmanned and autonomous? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think for one, it's sort of a spectrum, right? I, I don't think that's got to be a binary. There's a pilot, there's not a pilot. I would argue, in a sense, we've had un, unpiloted aircraft for quite some time, and I think of them as missiles. You know, I uh, send off my missile, I give it targeting information, and I say, go seek and kill this target that's out there. That's somewhere along the spectrum of piloted to unpiloted, where we're doing some manned-unmanned teaming. I think the advantage that a pilot brings is that ability to uh, to do the very human thing of recognizing and adapting. So far, uh, certainly algorithmically based systems are only as good as what they have seen. Now, maybe there'll become a future where artificial intelligence uh, is uh, can can approach the capabilities of a pilot, and that future may be sooner than any of us think. Uh, but right now, I think there's still the ability to give a pilot mission type orders, say, this is what we are trying to accomplish. Now use that human ingenuity and creativity to adapt to the situation in a way that uh, we can't program in advance. So I think we'll see a gradual change over time from a uh, mostly pilot to probably a mostly autonomous, but I think there's a lot of gray area in between. So uh, kind of leading off of that, um, to, to sum it up 
uh, a little bit more concisely, the, the autonomous aircraft, collaborative combat aircraft, uh, are going to be more like tools for the human pilots to use alongside, uh, alongside the, the human piloted fighters then. I'm not saying it'll always be that way. I think that is certainly, I mean, we talk about collaborative combat aircraft. I, I think that's uh, a lot of what we see, just like the AMRAMs that I shoot are tools alongside my piloted version now. Um, but I do think, I think there might be, come a time where we get more autonomy. But I think in the near term, that's where the real uh, synergistic advantage comes from, is being able to combine that human ingenuity and adaptability with the mass that can come from having autonomous and collaborative aircraft. So um, kind of going off, so if we went to war with a pure adversary today, um, to what extent would non-stealth fighters be used in say like the opening day missions? Obviously, you know, it was the night of, um, what was the operation? I'm totally blanking right now, uh, Desert Storm, sure. right? And we totally kicked down the door with, at the time, non-stealth aircraft. Um, but now if we shift to, say, the Pacific or Eastern Europe, if we were to go to war, how would non-stealth aircraft be leveraged um, just with the attrition rates? Um, I mean, I, I can't get into details, obviously, of specific plans and whatnot. Thinking in generalities, if we're going up against a, a peer or near-peer adversary, we're, we're going to need all the forces we can get. I think that is uh, an accurate assessment. Some missions are more optimized for some uh, types of aircraft than others. Uh, certainly you can imagine some situations where you're going to need all of the stealth, all the survivability, all the lethality features that you can imagine. There's other missions where maybe that's not as necessary, but yet we still need aircraft to do these missions. Um, so I think, again, without going into specifics, you can certainly expect that everybody's going to be uh, involved in some way in the fight because it's going to be an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. So kind of pivoting over to the test community and, and your experience there, um, obviously there's a lot of change going on uh, in the Air Force as a whole uh, as we pivot towards uh, more near-peer threats. How is the test community adapting to that new challenge? Well, in one sense, you know, what, one of the things we always said in test is that we are fighting our wartime mission every day. Um, if the balloon went up and we were suddenly in a, in a major fight, uh, the time to develop new technologies is likely passed at that point. Um, the time to, to do that is right now. So certainly that gives a intensity there that says we need to uh, be planning as if these are going to go to war in the future because uh, they very well might be, and that's when this is when we figure out if they're going to work or not. Um, I will say it's shifted our focus a little bit. Um, when I first started doing Raptor test in the 2014-15 timeframe, there's still, when we're using Raptors in Syria, uh, we're still focused on how can we talk to the terminal air controllers on the ground uh, to deliver ordnance in a, in, in a close air support kind of scenario. That's not part of the Raptor's main mission, and I would say as part of the shift to more of a near-peer fight, um, while that is still a capability that we developed, that's not what we're focusing on now. Our testing is focused on developing those capabilities for that high-end fight because there's only so much time, right? And that's not just on the test. It's on the development side as well. It's where do we uh, spend our limited resources. Kind of a follow-up question to that. Um, when you talked about that line between test and developmental, 
where does that kind of line be drawn between the government and the military and private contractors and defense contractors? Yeah, so I mean, fundamentally, it's it's all the same team, and uh, no one party can do it without the others on board. Um, for example, at Edwards, that you mentioned the intro, the Com- Raptor Combined Test Force, that's a combined force of uh, military, government, civilian, and contractor. We had Lockheed, Boeing, Pratt and Whitney, uh, several of the primes were embedded in that unit because we're all trying to make the best product with the limited resources that. Uh, that are just inherent in the nature of the beast. Um, typically, the government's going to set the requirements. They're going to say, this is what our our uh, emphasis is. This is what we need it to be able to do. That goes to the contractor to execute those requirements, and test sort of sits in the middle of saying, does it meet the requirements? Is this what the warfighter needs? Um, or does it need to go back for more iteration? Uh, the worst way to do that is to do a fly-fix-fly, fly, where we say, uh, this is what it needs to do. The contractor tries to do it. We go up and we fly it. We say, nope, doesn't work. Start over. That is long. It's expensive. It's painful for everybody. Um, so we found over time that the more we can integrate early on, uh, the better chances of having a successful product with fewer of those cycles of having to go back around to the beginning. Um, and that's that's tough if it's an adversarial relationship. So obviously there's government and contractors have some different incentives. There's contractual relationships. Uh, but in the end, if we can all towards the same goal, we're more likely to uh, to get success together, if that makes sense. Great. So now now kind of moving on to your own uh, flying career. Sure. Um, uh, you went to the Empire Test Pilot School. Uh, so for That's the people right. who aren't familiar, including both of us, <laughs> uh, how, how does that differ from Air Force Test Pilot School and uh, what they do there? Uh, so got to brag it's the first test pilot school just gonna throw that out there um but no in in seriousness it they're very similar broadly there's um, a number of test pilot schools around the world uh the four that the air force recognizes are usaf test pilot school at edwards the u.s navy test pilot school at pax river maryland empire test pilot school in the uk and then epner in france and don't ask me to pronounce what epner stands for um with the way it worked, I applied to the Air Force Test Pilot School, and as part of building their classes, I was chosen as an exchange officer to go there. Um, but then once you're there, it's it's largely the same principles, right? They're all teaching how to do flight test. Not always this is the exact technique. There were some things they taught that slightly differed. There's certainly some terminology they used that was different, but you're learning that discipline process of how to be a professional tester, professional risk manager, um, and how you can uh, get the results that you're looking for in a safe and effective manner. It's a little bit smaller of a school. Uh, they're, they're both about a year long. Uh, Empire only puts through one class at a time, and so there were 10 of us on the fixed wing course out of two classes of 24 at any given time at Edwards. So it makes it a little bit more intimate, which is nice. Uh, but by and large, they're, they're comparable, and the Air Force treats them as an equivalent qualification. So going into more of that um, risk management, professional uh, professional risk management, how does being a test pilot and going through the test pilot school change your perspective on flying as a profession? Yeah, so it's it was definitely a mindset shift. You know, coming from the operational world in the F-16 at this time, my job was to be a combat mission-ready pilot, to be ready to go to war and in some cases to go do it, you know. But uh, our missions were about... Either, either going out and dropping bombs or you're preparing to go drop bombs. 
in the test world, like I said, you're doing your wartime mission every day. So you're going out there to uh, find information that we didn't know before, whether that's about a new avionics system, a new radar package, a new uh, weapon you're trying to integrate onto the airplane, whatever it is. Um, that, that requires some mindset shift. In the training world, in the ops world, it was all about how can we get the right kind of training done, or at least as good as we can. Hey, there's weather where we're supposed to be, so let's flex, let's do an alternate mission. Uh, in test, it's hard to do that. You may have a specific test con specific configuration. It's going out to do these test points. It's not cleared to go outside that envelope yet because we've got to build our way up. And guess what? If there's a cloud layer right at that point where you were going to go fly, you may not have another mission. That took a little bit of getting used to of always flexing to just get whatever we can. Now you've got to get the right data uh, in the right order because there could be a safety buildup that depends on that. Um, but with, with besides that, I mean, it, it's still about matter of being a precise and professional pilot. I tried to do it in the ops world as well. It's just now instead of trying to go out and practice killing the bad guy or dropping the bombs where I'm supposed to, I'm trying to hit the test conditions, uh, whether they're the combination of G and altitude and airspeed or uh, the combination of uh, sensor settings and so forth to find uh, out did it perform as we expect. I want to circle back a little bit to... Um when you were saying there was a little bit of difference between the UK test pilot school and sure. how the US does it in the US. Did you realize those differences right away when you were at the Empire test school? Or were those differences only like you only figured out their differences when you came back and were talking to all your American colleagues and you're like, not necessarily exactly on the same wavelength? Uh, I'd say I largely figured it out before I went. So I was pretty fortunate in the sense I'd been in Korea. I applied to test pilot school. I got accepted, but the school didn't start for about 10 months after I was due to leave Korea. Uh, so I ended up spending that time at Eglin Air Force Base in the test squadron there before going to TPS. So that allowed me to kind of get a sense of how the USAF does test, uh, learn some of the te terminology, um, be part of test missions and so forth. And then when I went to the UK, I had that framework that I could put it into and try and start comparing, okay, when, when they say this, the US means that. Um, there's certainly been surprises over the course of it of, uh, wait, you guys don't, don't call it this? What's this term? And you know, you're still doing that translation. But again, it, a lot of what you're teaching is the, is the fundamentals, the methodology. Some of the specifics you're gonna pick up through OJT in your actual test squadron anyway, because guess what? Each of the units has different terminology. Testing an F-22 is different than testing a KC-46. So uh, some of that you're gonna pick up anyway. And now uh, kind of like shifting sort of towards your operational flying before um, being a test pilot. Um, what was the best instance of knowing you made a difference um, when you were in the cockpit of a fighter? Um, so, there was one mission in Afghanistan where I got to see that very directly. Um, there was so a lot of Afghanistan was boring. We were flying around looking through our targeting pods, looking for IEDs that are placed on the ground, providing armed overwatch. Um, but the occasion you get what's called troops in contact situations, people on the ground taking uh, effective enemy fire. Uh, so towards the end of my time there, my wingman and I got called to a troops in contact situation up in the northeast. Um, and we show up and there is a massive thunderstorm over the top of this. Um, so we get told there's an army unit, they're pinned down, they're taking heavy, heavy effective PKM and RPG fire and looking to get some suppression in the form of some weapons laid down so that they could break contact and try to evacuate their wounded. 
Um, the helicopters weren't able to fly because of the thunderstorms that were in there. My wingman and I ended up uh, going into the storm and delivering over the course of about an hour and a half, five different weapons and five different coordinates uh, that allowed them to break contact and get free. Um, in the process, damaged some of our uh, other bombs that we didn't drop just from the, I'm not sure if they're rain droplets or small hail, but uh, look out and see holes in our um, radomes of the bombs. Uh, but is what we had to do, and, and there wasn't really a question that that was the right thing to do in that case. Um, the coolest part was the next day I got to talk to the ground force commander on the secure phone, and, you know, I'm a reasonably young captain at this point, and in a fighter squadron, rank is fairly loose and fluid, and this is a first lieutenant, and every other word out of his mouth is, sir, sir this, sir that, and he's like, oh, you know, sir, thank you for, thank you, you know. Like, dude, you're, you're the one that was, like, laying in the mud here getting shot at. I just sort of flew and hit a button. Um, but hearing him say what a difference that made was uh, was definitely the most rewarding time. You know, okay, that that made a difference to allow them to break contact. So um, kind of going off of uh, the story in Afghanistan, what, what did the rest of the deploy- deployment look like um, from, you know, getting there to uh, kind of how your posture changes from flying operationally Um, but to being in an actual combat zone. Yeah, so, you know, flying the F-16, it's a multi-role fighter. We're training for air-to-air, all the different types of air-to-ground, et cetera. As we started to get ready to go to Afghanistan, our training focus shifted from be ready for anything to here's your mission, learn how to do it very well. And so we became singularly focused on close air support. Um, We... We're in Aviano at the time in Italy. Um, as part of that, we deployed back to the United States, spent some time at Eglin, some time at Nellis, training with various uh, terminal air controllers around there, um, and then went back to Aviano before we went to Afghanistan. So the spin-up started several months prior. Um, getting into Afghanistan, the first day uh, is sort of, here's uh, some briefings from the squadron that you're replacing on rules of engagement, special instructions, and so forth. We had studied all this in advance, but still, Okay, here's no kidding what we're doing. Now go into crew rest, mission start the next day, and then your first mission is is game on. Uh, we were paired with people from that previous squadron, you know, flight lead from the previous squadron, wingman from uh, our squadron. And then after that one sortie, okay, you guys have a baton, go run with it. Um, and my second sortie was uh, pretty intense. It went, we were a night sortie, we were, uh, it was pretty quiet, a lot of just sort of droning around. And then suddenly we're called to a troops in contact situation where a convoy had taken fire and uh, thought we were going to end up employing right then. And so it was sort of a, all right, you're in it now. There is no more warm-up here. Um, after that, we were there for, uh, this was before we'd gone to six-month deployments, so we ended up being about four and a half months, all told. Um, and, you know, some days were really exciting. Some days were pretty darn boring, flying around in circles for four or five hours, um, going to the tanker a few times that was your excitement um but it was it was fun because like i said you were i mean fun is a weird word but it was rewarding to do what you had trained for um and to know that that, like i said you were making a difference there as as a combat pilot so much of your career is training the chance to go out and do the mission that you trained for makes it pretty rewarding and then you're just with a bunch of your best friends when you're deployed. So uh, lots of ping pong when you're not playing. Uh, you know, just getting to, to live that lifestyle um, with 24-hour ops is pretty cool. Um, just to kind of go off that. So obviously, like, kind of having fun where you can in, the, yeah. in your off time. 
Um, but the day to day, um, like whether you're flying or not, um, what does that look like? Like you wake up and what do you do? Yeah. So when I got there, I was initially part of on the night train. We we're doing 24 hour ops. So we had sort of split up into, uh, essentially a day group and a night group. And some people tried to be more first part of the day. Some people were more last part of the day, etc. Uh, so my first few months I was exclusively flying nights. So typically it would be, you know, sleep during the day, report time around dinner times. So we'd swing by the, the mess tent, get dinner for breakfast. Uh, you do your briefing, you'd have a planned mission, but normally there, you didn't end up doing it. Uh, you'd always get pulled for something that was higher priority that was happening in real time. Uh, you'd launch the two ship, go off planned for four hour sorties. But again, sometimes things were quiet and they'd release you early. More often things were busy and you get extended. So, um, any, anywhere from maybe a three hour sortie at the low end to an eight hour sortie at the high end, if, if stuff was busy. Um, and then, you know, not a whole lot of briefing and debriefing because we, we had developed contracts. Okay, this is how all the flight leads and wingmen will work together. And again, you don't really know on a day-to-day basis what you're doing. So refresh the contracts, but then go out and, and do it. Typically, we flew about every other day on average. Um, we had enough pilots that, you know, every other day, maybe two every three days. Uh, occasionally, you'd sit alert if they needed you, in which case you're sitting there suited up, hoping the horn blows. Um, and then when you're not flying, you're sitting operations supervisor, you're doing the schedule for whoever's coming next, some of these other jobs that are still needed, even in, in combat. Um, so kind of shifting, um, talking a little bit about Middle East, the Middle East, um, now kind of over into your time in Korea. Yeah. So obviously you were, you were super close to North Korea and China. Um, what was the ops temple like in Korea um, flying in that operational unit? It was, it was certainly busy. So, uh, you know, coming from Aviano, yes, we had deployed to Afghanistan, but when we weren't deployed, we were, like I said, on, on call for anything. Now you go to a unit in Korea where you know what your wartime mission is. Uh, you don't have to say, okay, today we're fighting this fictional country. It was uh, in our training, we are assuming night one of the war. Um, so that certainly gave a focus to what you were doing. Uh, and it, it gave it a sense of realism. When you show up, you get issued uh, your real-world chem gear, and that sits in a duffel bag under your bed. And they, if they tell you you need it, you go out and you break the zip tie and you open it up, but it's always there. That is definitely a reminder that this could kick off at any moment. Uh, similarly, on the maintenance side, you know, they would brief, okay, if we, if we needed to go, this is how many airplanes we have available at this time. Um, so it... With that said, there's still a limit to how much you can fly. The airplanes can only fly so much. You There's still you know a fairly small unit. Um, so it was not necessarily that we flew so much more, but there was a focus there that really made it uh, a great place to learn how to be a fighter pilot. I'd say the other aspect, if I can jump in, is it's a small, it's a short tour, right? So at Kunsan, standard is unaccompanied one year. That means that we were very focused on getting our upgrades done. You get somebody straight out of the B course, they've got to be checked out in the airplane uh, for your mission. There's not time to spread this out over four months because as long as they're in the upgrade, they're not contributing to the wing's mission. So you want to get them through, which is a great place to be a new instructor, as I was, is you have a lot of uh, a lot of business, if you were. Awesome. So kind of shifting to the early years of your career, um, sure. ed- education and background, 
Um, so what made you join the Air Force? Um, did you always know you wanted to come to USAF or what's that story behind uh, your career? Did I always know? No, but I knew from a pretty early age. Um, I dated back to around seventh grade. Um, I found a couple of books uh, between one parent's basement and the other parent's bookshelf. Uh, one was a fictional book from the early 60s about a cadet that comes to the Air Force Academy. It was a very um, leave it to beaver kind of life is perfect, rose-colored glasses view, but I said, oh man, that's the place for me. The other part uh, was Chuck Yeager's autobiography, uh, which again, you can you can look at and it's, it's a, you know, no book is perfect, but those two in my mind were like, I wanna go to the Air Force and I wanna be a test pilot. Um, I, I kind of varied from that over time. Like for example, my, in high school, I realized my eyes were outside of limits to fly. Um, so I kind of shifted gears. Oh, I think I wanna be an engineer. When I came into the academy as not pilot qualified, while I was at the academy, PRK was approved the first time for pilot candidates. And suddenly I was back to, oh wait, maybe I can do this. This could be possible. That's some good timing right there. It was, <laughs> I was studying physics 215 of my sophomore year. And I remember getting email coming into my inbox and like, oh wow, my life is, is different. <laughs> That's awesome. So I guess, um, if we want to talk a little bit, so you said you kind of wanted to be a test pilot um, before then you, your eyesight uh, wasn't, was under the, whatever the threshold was, but then you kind of switched, shifted towards an, to be an engineer. So I guess the question was originally like, as an aeronautical engineer, was test pilot always the plan? Um, but I guess like, if you want to talk a little bit about how those two kind of molded together and helped you out in the long term. Sure. So. I actually didn't start out as an aero major here at the academy. I uh, was something called material science, which is sort of half chemistry, half uh, mechanical engineering. Um, and then ended up shifting my sophomore year. And I think that's sort of indicative. I've always wanted to do everything. Sorry. Um, the, it, so I always try to delay any decision because man, if I, if I could, I want to do it all. Um, when I went into the aero major, certainly flight test was on my mind, I took uh, Aero 456, which is the flight test course that I teach now, which gives you an intro to flight test uh, and allows us to go out to Edwards. That kind of solidified, yes, I think I want this. Um, and that was good because then you go out into the operational world, um, be it grad school and then pilot training for me and then Aviano Kunsan, like you're not around with that flight test community. So that was sort of a spark that I had in the back of my mind of, hey, I, I think I want to do this. But even then, I was still reconsidering, is this really what I want to do? Or is this what seventh, seventh grade Tyler read a book about and said he wanted to do? And maybe that's not the right decision now. Um, and the good news is a lot of the things that make you competitive for test pilot school also make you competitive for weapons school and a lot of the other uh, opportunities that are out there. And so I was able to keep pushing hard, knowing that at some point I'm going to make a decision let me gather as much information as I can along the way to make sure that's the right decision for me. So continuing on a little bit, um, one of the things we haven't touched on in your career is you go into test pilot school as an F-16 pilot, and somewhere along the line you come out as an F-22 pilot. How did that sure. happen? Yeah, so um, you know, while you're in test pilot school, you fly a lot of different airplanes. Uh, part of their objective is to expose you to many different design philosophies, many different flying qualities, types, etc., so you, you start to learn that an airplane's an airplane's an airplane. You can, uh, with some basic fundamentals, you can fly pretty much anything. However, I'd argue that only makes you 
somewhat qualified to test anything. Again, I could go up and I could do a basic test point on some airplane. That doesn't mean I necessarily know the mission of that airplane and know how it's going to be used, what makes it effective in that particular role. Um, so within the Air Force, we kind of classify our test pilots as a fighter test pilot or a mobility test pilot or a helicopter, so on kind of broad categories. And so as a uh, test pilot student from the fighter community, it's frequent that you'll go back to your own platform, but it's not a given. Uh, in my case, I was probably the last or very close to the last non-F-22 pilot to go to the F-22 and test because now we're getting a whole lot of people that started off in the F-22. Uh, when I went through, we were just starting to get the first people that had started off in the F-22, then gone to test pilot school, and then uh, gone back into the community. Uh, but fundamentally, it's just what you're assigned. I started out actually in the F-35 squadron. I never got a chance to fly the F-35. I was doing test support in the F-16, flying a safety chase and as a target for test points and things like that, uh, and sort of uh, paid my dues or my or my way. And when an opportunity arose, I was uh, in a good position to get the nod to go down and do that. So I got a I got a little bit of a question. So um, obviously, fighter pilot went to test pilot school has astronaut ever been on your mind have you have you applied thinking about applying uh i have not applied um and i probably won't uh when there's a, a round that came out in the 2015 time frame for applications and i think i was the only pilot in my squadron that did not apply uh but that was never why i wanted to go to test pilot school i i never felt like i had uh, the bug for space and frankly i felt if if i didn't have that passion there's plenty of other people that did that would get that opportunity uh so it was it just never really appealed to me and i think part of it is i'm so um like flying is is, is hard work when you're trying to do the right thing um you're trying to make sure i don't screw it up i get the right i'm on the right conditions i'm uh, in the formation where i need to be and i often have trouble enjoying it in the moment and i was afraid that i would get this opportunity to go fly in space I'd be so worried about doing it right that I'd never really like appreciate it after the fact or until after the fact, like, holy cow, I was just in space. So I figure there's other people out there that uh, are up for that. Definitely. Definitely. People, people want to go to space. A lot yeah. of them. Yeah. They don't, they don't lack for applicants and qualified ones at that. Right here. Right here's one person. We'll see if here I get as well. there. Um, so kind of looking over your whole career, um, is, do you think you, you made the right choices, did the right things, or is there anything you might want to go back and say, maybe I could do that a little differently? I think, I don't think of a single significant choice that I regret. Um, I mentioned earlier, I tried to delay my decisions as much as I can. So for example, uh, coming out of here, I did not apply for NJEP, the Euro-NATO Joint uh, Jet Pilot Training Program, because I wasn't sure I wanted to fly fighters. I uh, saw things I liked in darn near every platform and figured if I go and fly T6s, get some air to my belt there, um, then I can make the decision I want. Uh, I'll make the, an informed decision. And it ended up being I wanted to go the T38 route in the fighter track, uh, but I delayed that. Same thing, like I said, with test pilot school versus weapon school versus staying in, in the combat air force, etc. Um, so I think I made the best decisions that I could with the information that I had, and I did what I could to uh, reduce my reducible ignorance about those decisions. Um, so while I don't regret anything, there's a little bit of wistfulness that you can't do it all. At some point, you got to make that decision. I'd still love to fly C-17, you know, and go do that that mission, bring relief supplies into, you know, a uh, 
area after a tsunami or something. Um, that's a really important mission. They do cool stuff. So I want to do it all. Unfortunately, you got to make a decision at some point. So when you went to uh, UPT, um, I, obviously I'm coming from kind of the like T38s. Oh, you got to go to NGEP these days just because the num how the numbers are. Obviously, sure. it's, it's possible. But what was the competition like to get a T38 uh, after the T6 in uh, regular UPT back in the day? Yeah, so I'll give you, you know, this is a snapshot in time. This is almost two decades old at this point. Um, I went to pilot training. I did T6s at Moody, which is not a pilot training base anymore. Uh, they only had T6s, and they were about half the class size of other places. So for my T6 class, we entered with 14. We got one that rolled back in. So we were at a high water mark of 15 in our class, and then 10 ended up graduating T6s, all of those actually being self-initiated. Nobody washed out, they all decided that that was not for them. Uh, of the 10 of us, there were three T-38s. So uh, pretty reasonable odds in that sense, but still, you know, only, only three. Um, it was a competition, but I always encourage people to uh, make it, you know, do the best you can and let the chips fall where they may. Um, there's a tendency if you think too much about that, that then you become somebody that doesn't, isn't your best self in terms of helping other people in your class. It's, it's definitely a team effort. Uh, and if you start worrying too much about, oh, if, if I do, uh, if I don't do as well as that person, then they're going to get the airplane that I don't. Like, dude, you are all of us together. I'll do your best. And if you're doing that, the instructors will notice that. That'll be part of what makes you better to teach others. Uh, and you'll compete better if, that, uh, if you take that attitude. All right, any final questions before we get to our, uh, the last wrap up question? I'm all set. All righty. So I've, I've done it. This is my sixth time asking this. A uh, little bit of a tradition on the show. Um, so it's, I'm going to be kind of, I'm interested to hear your answer because obviously you're a test pilot. Normally, this is the first test pilot we've had. First <laughs> uh, pilot on that has flown a lot, a lot of different aircraft. Um, so what is the best aircraft in the Air Force's in inventory and why? Uh, whichever one I'm flying at that moment. Uh, that's my that's my political answer. Um, we've had some pretty we've had some pretty people have sold. I mean, I've, I've been heated, sold heated yeah. uh, arguments. Colonel Rudder sold me the A ten. Colonel Macros sold me the B fifty two or B two. Major Waters with the C one thirty. Yeah, very they, they do it all. Yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. Like it, it's a it's an artificial question, obviously, because we have multiple airplanes because we have lots of different missions we have to do with them. If I'm going to do uh, casts in a low to medium threat environment, I absolutely want an A-10. Uh, if I'm doing casts, I'm surrounded by modern double-digit surface-to-air missile systems, the a is probably not going to do much for me, right? I'm, I'm probably going to get shot down before I get anywhere close to it. Um, the Raptor isn't great if I'm trying to uh, do a humanitarian mission, right? So with all that caveating said, while I love the F-16 and that was my first love, uh, I am gonna argue for the F-22 in this case, uh, as you'd expect. Uh, it is an airplane that truly lives up to its glossy brochure. It does the things that it says it's going to do and it does them very well. Uh, its ability to be a force multiplier, certainly for me being a F-16 wingman uh, with the information that I needed to bring in and fuse all myself, now take that to an F-22 where it's doing so much of that for you that allows you to focus on a higher level uh, battle space effects. Um, all of that, and then obviously the super maneuverability, the uh, super cruise ability, the stealth, all that combines to make a pretty impressive air-to-air -air platform. 
not great for humanitarian relief, but as an area platform, it's hard to beat. I got a question. So if you were to, ha- if you were being deployed in a pure adversary competition, sure. would you want to be in the F-22 or the F-35? I would still want to be in the F-22. Uh, I am partial, um, obviously. And again, they have complementary but distinct roles. Um, I think the F-22 is still, uh, there's a lot of things the F-35 does better, and I won't go into most of them here. Um, but the F-22 still does its primary job well. They have the, um, as a community, they have the uh, luxury of focusing on a pure mission as opposed to trying to do many things. They can focus on one thing and do it very, very well. Uh, so I would still want to be in the F-22. As expected. I, I was expecting yes. that answer. So, so. I figured. It's, it's a heck of a jet. The demo, the demo last semester was pretty, <laughs> was pretty incredible. I yeah. sat in that thing at, at Peterson, and not 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 to brag at all, but <laughs> it, it was it was a pretty cool jet. It uh, it is impressive. Yeah. Any uh, closing remarks? Awesome. Uh, thank you for coming on, sir. It's uh, it's been great to know you since I've been here, and uh, it's been great to to interview you here. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's been uh, it's been fun. Uh, enjoy talking to you. Enjoy getting to spread a little bit of the word, especially because. You know, it has been a non-traditional career path in a lot of ways. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, sir, for coming on. Once again, this was the Flyover Podcast, episode six. Um, These episodes are all available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Um, Check out our YouTube channel and our newly launched Instagram account. Um, We have clips there, um, little edited clips, and we'll catch you guys on the next one.